Welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger, and here's our first story today, December 18 of Monday. It's on the Globe Gazette. It's entitled, front page, Wall Lake Trucker Disappears, Leaving Wife Searching for Answers. And it's written by Dolly Butts. It's a long article. I'll, I'll probably skip a few parts of it, but uh, it's been around for a while, and the dateline is Wall Lake. On a Thursday morning, in Sarah Schultz's East End Eat-In Kitchen, two pairs of muddy children's hiking boots lay scattered on the wood floor underneath a green chalkboard. Printed in big, dusty letters on the chalkboard was a message, Bring Dave home. Sarah's brown eyes widened as she looked beyond a lit, white, artificial Christmas tree through glass patio doors. As she stood, she leaned forward and a serious expression washed across her face. For a moment, she thought she saw her missing husband outside. But the man wearing a cowboy hat in the neighbor's driveway wasn't David Schultz. Last month, the 53-year-old truck driver and father of 10-year-old twin boys disappeared under mysterious circumstances. His red Peterbilt semi with white stripes was found the afternoon of November 21st, parked in the middle of the northbound lane of County Road N14, not far from where it inter intersects with D15 in northeastern Sac County. The trailer he rents was loaded with pigs, but David was nowhere to be found on that stretch of paved roadway, which is flanked by cornfields. A number of farms are visible from all directions, along with wind turbines several miles off to the east. I want my husband. It's exhausting. It's awful, Sarah said, sobbing as she clutched a plaid flannel shirt jacket that belongs to her husband. A similar jacket was found in a ditch on the side of the road opposite David's truck. She gave him the jacket that last Christmas. Since David went missing, the United Cajun Navy, a Louisiana-based nonprofit and volunteers, have scoured more than 100,000 acres in and around Sac County. On a recent Saturday, David and uh, Sarah's twins, Joseph and Isaac, even donned blaze-oranged vests and headed into the golden brown fields to search for their dad. They wrestled around, rode all terrain vehicles, and muddled their boots, muddied their boots. Sarah said her sons are attending trauma counseling sessions. She said she hasn't really seen the boys cry. But when her eyes well up, she said Isaac brings her a box of tissues and dries her tears. Joseph is real quiet. I don't know what they know. I don't even know. Is he alive or is he dead? I don't know, she said. Sac County Sheriff Ken McClure said he is confident his office and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation will eventually solve the case. He said investigators haven't ruled anything out. We're going to run this out until we just can't run it anymore, until we can either find out what happened to David or where he's at and bring him home and give some answers, said McClure, who acknowledged there's a chance David suffered a medical episode and his body just hasn't been found yet. However, he emphasized that the area where David's semi was located was searched a minimum of three times, twice by law enforcement and at least once by the United Cajun Navy. Sarah has repeatedly called her husband's disappearance suspicious and said, This is not something David would do. He would never leave. His family is his life. 
She has expressed frustration with local law enforcement and said she feels the case is more than small-town police can handle. This is not normal. This is like an abduction, like someone took him, she said. They need help. I want the FBI. It's been long enough. McClure, who has been in law enforcement for more than 36 years and served as sheriff for 20, said his office received several tips a day about David's case. He said every tip is vetted. I don't mean this to sound critical, but we're getting a whole bunch of keyboard detectives and Perry Masons out here are alike. About here, who are like? Well, did you check this? This isn't day one, if you know what I mean, he said. What we're trying to do is prioritize, prioritize them. Things that we know we can already dispute go in one pile. Things that are just absolutely ludicrous and absurd go into another. And then the ones we think are valuable are investigated. McClure said the FBI isn't involved in the case, but he said that doesn't mean that. Down the road, it won't be asked to assist. The Division of Criminal Investigation and their resources are just as capable of getting the information we need, and really, we're looking for the powerful uh, proverbial needle in a haystack. All we know is this semi was here and the last time we have him on video. Unless you have a crystal ball and you've searched over 100,000 square acres, where do you go, he said. Desperate for answers, Sarah reached out to two psychics at the suggestion of friends. The first psychic, whom she spoke with over the phone, said her husband is being kept in the corner of a room and, at the time, at that time, was alive but weak. The second psychic sat at Sarah's kitchen table and, while holding one of her husband's orange hunting hats, revealed he was hit in the back of the head before being placed in a moving body of water. She said he was sorry that he would never leave me on purpose, Sarah said. Well, David Schultz's missing persons case has attracted the attention of locals and online sleuths worldwide. The theories they've posted on true crime forums and social media pages have run the gamut from a medical episode to a cartel-related kidnapping. <clears throat> While some think David was murdered, others surmise he simply walked away from his life. Colin Gerstoff, who lives in Denison, Iowa, and has been a truck driver since 1994, said there's a lot of people talking about it. There's just a lot of things that just don't quite line up right with the whole deal, Gerstorf said, standing outside Casey's on the outskirts of early Iowa. He held a slice of pizza in one hand and disposal coffee in the other, not far from where the regional grain truck he drives was parked. Gerstorf, who knows the man, David, rents his trailer from, said he thinks local Truckers, wives are more rattled about the case than the drivers are. He said there's weird stuff that goes on on the road. Everybody's queued up now, so if something weird happens, they're probably not going to be very friendly about it. The baffling circumstances surrounding David's disappearance have only continued to fuel wild speculation. Initially, the Sac County Sheriff's Office revealed little about his investigation into its whereabouts. In a Facebook post dated November 22nd, the day after David's truck was found, the sheriff's office asked property owners in the northeastern portion of Sac County to check their land and outbuildings for anything out of the ordinary. Then nearly a week after he went missing, the Woodbury County Sheriff's Office issued a statement dispelling 
any connection between his disappearance and information circulating on social media about a November 27, about a November 27 traffic stop near Highway 20 and the bypass. A 31-year-old North Sioux City man who was reportedly driving recklessly near Mobile was subsequently arrested for possession of cocaine and felon in possession of firearms. On December 9, McClure released a detailed account of David's last hours before he disappeared. He noted that David was not the David Schultz who had a one-way flight booked from Minneapolis to Phoenix late in the afternoon, November 21. He also said David had not legally gone through a U.S. border crossing. According to McClure, a Sac County Secondary Roads employee called in David's truck at 3.04 p.m. on November 21 after it was discovered parked on the traveled portion of the road at the intersection of D-15, 190th Street, and N-14, Union Avenue. David's semi had reportedly been sitting there since the early morning. Truck was shut off, the lights were off, and the key was in the ignition. Deputies found David's wallet and cell phone inside. McClure said a towel, cell phone, charger, and pocket knife were found with a coat on the opposite side of the road. Sarah last saw her husband about 7.30 p.m. November 20. She said he had been working all day and asked her to grab him a change of clothes. She said her husband was eager to get his work done and come back home since her daughter and grandson were visiting from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. However, at 10 a.m. the next day, Sarah found the man David rents his trailer from on her doorstep. He said, have you spoken to Dave? She recalled. I said no. He said that no one, can, no one can get a hold of him and the pigs haven't been dropped off yet. Sarah repeatedly called David's telephone every few minutes, but there was no answer. And at 4.30 p.m., she said the law enforcement officers called her from David's phone and she headed out to the site where his truck was found. Following the discovery, country rather county investigators searched the area on foot and with a canine, which tracked David's scent to a field drive. McClure said the track wasn't very long. The sheriff's office requested assistance from the Iowa State Patrol Air Wing Unit. State Patrol pilot flew the surrounding area but did not detect a heat signature consistent with the person. For the next two days, law enforcement, area firefighters, and volunteers expanded the ground search on foot and used drones. Nothing of significant value was located, according to McClure. And to further the search, McClure said Sac County Sheriff's detectives and Lakeview police traveled to the Eagle Grove area in Wright County and, with help from the Wright County Sheriff's Office, found the hog confinement David was supposed to load up from. Investigators learned David had picked up his load, but he had been late to arrive. His truck was the last truck loaded. He left at about 10.50 p.m. Sarah said her husband throws his wallet on the dash rather than keeping it in his pocket, which would be bad for his back. She said law enforcement officers showed her the wallet, which contained David's driver's license, and she said it held at least $2,000. From what she can tell, nothing was missing from it. He starts off the week with about $2,000. He wants to have it for emergencies. He doesn't use credit cards, she said. McClure said the last time David was seen on an Iowa Department of Transportation camera on Highway 20, 11.15 p.m., November 20. He was heading west of marker 126, a truck stop and convenience store just east of Fort Dodge. I think it's very unlikely, based on the video evidence that we have of him in Fort Dodge, that somebody else was in the truck, said McClure, 
who declined to go into further detail about the video other than to say, you can clearly see that it's him on video. At some point in David's journey, McClure said, cell phone data shows him arriving at the intersection of highways 20 and 71 at about 12.18 a.m., November 21. The data shows the phone traveling north to where the truck was found and suggests the truck may have been there since 12.40 a.m. Sarah said an acquaintance nearly hit her husband's truck on N14 on his way to work at 5.30 a.m. She said the truck was still sitting there when the acquaintance returned from feeding hogs at 7.30 a.m. He knows Dave's a good trucker. He thought Dave had it handled and didn't think much of it, she said. While searching for David on December 2, one of the United Cajun Navy's teams found the remains of a missing Rockwell City man, 54-year-old Mark Edward Reisberg, on a wooded abandoned property southwest of Jolly. Jolly. Early on, social media users tried to tie the disappearance of the two men together. Reisberg's body was found in the Chrysler, a Chrysler PT Cruiser. Preliminary, preliminary findings suggest Reisberg, who was reported missing on October 28, suffered a single gunshot wound, according to a statement from Calhoun County Sheriff um, Pat Riley. Riley said Reisberg's body was sent to Iowa's office on the state medical examiner for autopsy, and the foul play was not expect, was not suspected. We skip to the end of the article now where um, it starts with a quote. It's hard work doing livestock like that. He's 53, but he's spry. He can run. He can jump. He's young at heart, you know, she said of David, her, her, his wife said of David, who takes pride in being able to transport five loads of hogs a day. And quote, she says, he can outwork a young man and he's proud of his work ethic. And here's the other article on the front page of the Gazette. It's entitled, Santa Saves Iowa Nativity Scene from Removal. Constitutional concern threatened the display outside the fire department, and the dateline is Toledo. It's an Associated Press article. A Santa figure saved an Iowa Farm Department's nativity scene from being shut down following complaints that the display might violate the U.S. Constitution. The display in the central Iowa city of Toledo was moved to a retired firefighter's nearby town last week after an atheist group raised concerns that the Christian depiction at the public fire station violated the First Amendment's prohibition on government agencies favoring one religion over others. Cedar Rapids station KCRG-TV reported Friday. The U.S. Supreme Court in 1984 ruled that manger, manger scenes are allowed on government property depending on the context of the displays during the Christmas during the Christmas season, and whether they have a secular purpose. During a city council meeting Monday, fans of the 15-year-long nativity tradition at the Toledo Fire Department pitched adding a Santa figure to keep the display on public ground. The city confirmed that the nativity scene, plus Santa, is back up at the station. Eastern Iowa atheist found Justin's, uh, founder Justin Scott said he's satisfied. I don't believe there's any ill intent by the city of Toledo, Scott told Des Moines Station KCCI-TV. I think it was just something that was nice. It was a nice gesture by a nice family. They put it up and nobody bothered to notice that it was actually a constitutional violation. Okay, folks, I'm not finding uh, much local news, in fact, uh, very little. So I'm going to jump here to a couple national stories that are in the Nation and World section of the Globe Gazette. 
This one is entitled Migrant Boat Capsizes, More Than 60 Killed, and the dateline is Cairo. It says a boat carrying dozens of migrants trying to reach Europe capsized off the coast of Libya, leaving more than 60 people dead, including women and children, the UN Migration Agency said. The shipwreck, which took place overnight between Thursday and Friday, was the latest tragedy in this part of the Mediterranean Sea, a key but dangerous route for migrants seeking a better life in Europe. Thousands have died, according to officials. The UN's International Organization for Migration said in a statement late Saturday that the boat was carrying 86 migrants when strong waves swamped it off the town of Zuwara on Libya's western coast and that 61 migrants drowned, according to survivors. And North Korea fires missile into sea, South Korea says, and the dateline is Seoul, South Korea. It says North Korea on Sunday fired a short-range ballistic missile into the sea, South Korea said, in a possible display of defiance against the latest steps by Washington and Seoul to tighten their nuclear deterrence plans against North Korean threats. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said the missile was fired from an area near the North Korean capital of Pyongyang at around 10.38 p.m. and flew 354 miles before landing in the sea. The South Korean military said it was sharing the launch information with the United States and Japan to further analyze the details while maintaining readiness against the possibility of additional North Korean military activities. It criticized the launch as a clear violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Briefly, an Asian summit, leaders from Japan and the 10-member Association of Southeast Asian Nations at a special summit Sunday in Tokyo adopted a joint vision that emphasizes security and economic cooperation while respecting the rule of law amid growing tensions with China in regional seas. Severe weather, a storm dumped up to five inches of rain Sunday across Florida, uh, flooding streets and forcing the cancellation of boat parades and other holiday celebrations before moving up the East Coast and causing coastal flooding in South Carolina. A Los Angeles area church was destroyed in a massive uh, fire early Sunday, just hours before a celebration that was set to include a Christmas play and a toy giveaway. No injuries were reported. We jump to Serbia, or Serbia's uh, governing populist claimed a sweeping victory Sunday in the country's parliamentary election, which was marred by reports of major irregularities both during a tense campaign and on voting day. And we go back to Minnesota, where police in Marshall, Minnesota, say an officer shot and killed a man early Sunday after spotting him stabbing a woman. Police said in a news release that the officer used a taser on the man after seeing a woman being stabbed. Ultimately, shots were fired and the suspect died at the scene. The woman was in critical condition. And Texas, police in Texas are trying to determine who injured three bystanders as officers shot and killed a man who pointed a firearm at them late Saturday at a bar in an Austin entertainment district. Interim Austin Police Chief Robin Henderson said they were trying to determine who shot the bystanders. That's an Associated Press article. Here's an article um, titled uh, Border, Sec Border Security Talks Grind On. It's an Associated Press article. Lisa Mascaro and Stephen Groves wrote this. It says, deal is key to more aid for Ukraine and other U.S. security needs. Dateline is Washington. Time slipping. <clears throat> 
White House and Senate negotiators struggled Sunday to reach a U.S. border security deal that would unlock President Joe Biden's request for billions of dollars worth of military aid for Ukraine and other national security needs before senators leave for the holiday recess. The Biden administration, which is becoming more deeply involved in the talks, is facing pressure from all sides over a deal. Negotiators insist they are making progress, but a hoped-for framework did not emerge. Republican leaders signaled that without bill text, that without bill text, an upcoming procedural would likely fail. The talks come <clears throat> as Donald Trump, the Republican presidential frontrunner in 2024, delivered alarming anti-immigrant remarks about blood purity over the weekend, echoing Nazi slogans of World War II at a political rally. They're poisoning the blood of our country, uh, Trump said about the record numbers of immigrants coming to the U.S. without immediate legal status. Throughout the weekend, senators and top Biden officials, including Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, worked intently behind closed doors at the Capitol to strike a border deal, which Republicans in Congress are demanding in exchange for any help for Ukraine, Israel, and other national security needs. Mayorkas arrived for more talks late Sunday afternoon. Every day we get closer, not farther away, said Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat of Connecticut, as talks wrapped up in the evening. Their holiday recess postponed Murphy and Senator Kirsten Sinema. The Arizona Independent acknowledged that the difficulty of drafting and securing support for deeply complicated legislation on an issue that has vexed Congress for years. Ahead of more talks Monday, it is becoming apparent any action un is unlikely before year's end. Republican Senator, Senator uh, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said Saturday senators don't want to be jammed by a last-minute compromise reaped by negotiators. <clears throat> We're not anywhere close to a deal, Graham said Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press. Graham predicted the deliberations will go into next year. He was among 15 Republican senators who wrote to GOP leadership urging them to wait until the House returns January 8 to discuss the issue. Top GOP negotiator Senator James Langford of Oklahoma and Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell also signaled in their own letter Sunday that talks still had a ways to go and that this week's planned procedural vote would likely fail. The Biden administration faces an increasingly difficult political situation as global migration is on a historic rise and many migrants are feeling persecution or leaving war-torn countries for the United States. The president is being critical, rather the president is being criticized daily by Republicans led by Trump, as border crossings have risen to levels that make even some Democrats concerned. But the Biden administration is considering a revival of Trump-like policies, is drawing outrage from Democrats and immigrant advocates who say the ideals would gut the U.S. asylum system. Folks, I'm going to read a little uh, NFL roundup. I don't see any local sports on the uh, paper today, so I want you to know the, the Bucks win to stay atop the division. They were in. Texans are 19. The Titans were 16. That was an overtime game. The Browns beat the Bears 20-17. to 17. That was a close one. The Dolphins, 30, over the Jets, who, zero. The Panthers uh, got nine. The Falcons, seven. That was a tight game. The Saints, 24 to six, over the Giants. The Chiefs beat the Patriots, 27 to 17. 
The Bills beat the Cowboys 31-10. to 49ers were 45 and the Cardinals were 29. The Rams beat uh, the Commanders 28-20. to And the Ravens outdid the Jaguars 23-7. to And that's kind of a rough of that. <laughs> Here's a brief note to just ouster May Mix. Uh, Rodgers returns to Miami Gardens, Florida. The very slim opening the New York Jets had of keeping their playoffs hopes alive closed with an epic dud, and it might have added the chances of Aaron Rodgers making a late-season return from a torn Achilles tendon. A week after their 30-6 win over Houston, Zach Wilson and the Jets hoped that dominant performance would catapult a run that would end the franchise's 12-season playoff skid, NFL's longest active drought instead. They were eliminated following an embarrassing 30-0 loss against the Dolphins on Sunday after both Houston and Cleveland won their games. The loss assured a sixth consecutive losing season for the Jets. And the Eagles, Philadelphia quarterback Jalen Hurts is questionable for Monday night's game at uh, Seattle because of an illness. A person familiar with his status told the Associated Press on Sunday, the person speaking on condition of anonymity, anonymity, because the injury report hasn't been released yet, said Hertz will travel separately from the team. The Titans, Tennessee rookie quarterback Will Willis thinks he avoided serious injury after being awkwardly dragged to the turf during the Titans' 19-16 overtime loss against the Houston Texans on Sunday. And more Titan news. Tennessee honored Frank Whitecheck, the man who threw the lateral in the Music City Miracle by wearing his old number 89 as a sticker on its helmet Sunday against the Houston Texans. The Titans also wore their Houston Oilers throwback uniforms for the game. Here's a couple uh, Today in History highlights. On December 18 of 2019, the U.S. House impeached President Donald Trump on two charges, sending his case to the Senate for trial. The articles of impeachment accused him of abusing the power of the presidency to investigate rival Joe Biden ahead of the 2020 election and then obstructing Congress investigation. It was the first of two Trump impeachment trials that would end in acquittal by the Senate. And on this date in 1865, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolishing slavery was declared in effect by Secretary of State William Seward. In 1892, Peter Illich, ooh boy, in Taika, I'm having trouble with this one, I'm gonna, I should be able to pronounce it, but I can't, uh, the the person who put the nutcracker together publicly premiered in St. Petersburg, Russia. Although now considered a classic, it received a generally negative uh, reception from critics. And that was uh, Peter Ilyich T-C-H-A-I-K-O-V-S-K-Y's. Tchaikovsky's. I think that's right. That's how that should be pronounced. Uh, and then in 1917, Congress passed the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, prohibiting the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors and sent it to the states for ratification. 1940, Adolf Hitler signed a secretive directive ordering preparations for a Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. The invasion, known as Operation Barbarossa, was launched in June of 1941. And in 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the government's wartime detention of people of Japanese descent from the West Coast, while at the same time ruling that concedingly loyal Americans of Japanese ancestry could not continue to be detained. 1957, 
the shipping port atomic power station in Pennsylvania, the first nuclear facility to generate online in the United States, went online. And it was taken out of service in 1982. In 1958, the world's first communication satellite, SCORE, signal communication by orbiting relay equipment, nicknamed Chatterbox, was launched by the United States aboard an Atlas rocket. 1969, Britain's House of Lords joined the House of Commons in making permanent a 1965 ban on the death penalty for murder. In 2003, two federal appeals courts ruled the U.S. military could not indefinitely hold prisoners without access to lawyers or American courts. And in 2012, Texas A&M quarterback Johnny Manziel became the first freshman to be voted the Associated Press Player of the Year in college football. And you are listening to the Sioux City, I'm sorry, you are listening to the Mason City Global Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we're going to turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger paper for Monday, December 18. A couple of articles on here. I'm going to read this one here that is <clears throat> entitled, Webster City Manager Departs Earlier Than Planned. It is Ortiz Hernandez's last day was Thursday. It's written by Jane Curtis. Dateline is Webster City. <clears throat> Excuse me. Daniel Ortiz Hernandez, the outgoing city manager of Webster City, formally left the city's employ Thursday, roughly a month earlier than stated in his original resignation email to the city council and staff. I, I wanted to inform the council that this week will be my last week in the office, he said in a December 11 email that was shared by Webster City Mayor John Hawkins. When I submitted my notice of resignation, I made reference to using my accumulated leave time. I have a sufficient balance built up that would cover the remaining time in lieu of carrying over and drawing down any leave over the next several day, several pay periods, I am electing to just take the lump sum amount minus 50% of moving expenses owed to the city of Webster City per my employment agreement as part of my final paycheck for the pay period ending this Friday and paid on Friday, December 22 of 2023. The council formally accepted Ortiz Hernandez's resignation at its November 6 meeting. It was then stated that it would be effective January 18 of 2024. Ortiz Hernandez has accepted a position as the assistant city manager for the city of Ennis, Texas. Webster City lost its assistant city manager, Bria Diana Bishop, last Tuesday, and she announced her resignation in November shortly after Ortiz Hernandez. She was being considered for an interim city manager position and as a candidate in the formal search for a new city manager, according to Hawkins. All this means... Tonight, that tonight, the City Council of Webster City plans to go into closed session during its meeting and will likely choose an interim city manager from a field of more than a half a dozen candidates who have expressed interest, Hawkins said. The meeting begins at 6 p.m. in the Council Chambers of City Hall, 402nd Street in Webster City. With the exception of the closed session, this meeting is open to the public. A more formal search for a permanent city manager is ongoing. 
Ortiz Hernandez served as the city manager in Webster City from 2016 to 2018 when he returned to Webster City in 2021 from Wasco, California, where he served as city manager. He requested that his colleague, Bria Deanna Bishop, also be hired as Webster City's assistant city manager. She was public works director for the city of Wasco, California. Jeffrey Sheridan, the city manager who replaced Ortiz Hernandez in July of 2019, was released from his position in December 2020. Online records show he was hired following a long search to find Ortiz Hernandez's replacement. Sheridan was serving as a town manager for the uh, town of Lowell, Indiana, when he was hired for the Webster City position. This next article is on the front page also. It's called Faith in Action. High school senior and Army recruit Josiah Lott reflects on Night of Devastating Fire, written by Kelby Wingert. Josiah Lott had a couple of very, very bad weeks back in October, but you'd never know it from the positive outlook on life that the senior at Harvest Baptist School has. It was late on Saturday night going into Sunday morning when Lott heard a knock on the door of his family's apartment. It was his next-door neighbor, and something was wrong. The neighbor's apartment was on fire, and the fire department was on its way. I don't panic, Lott said. I assess the situation and know that because everything's connected through the vents, the fire is going to spread. I knew automatically that everything is going to burn up. Lot, 17, sprang into action, and after making sure his mother and two sisters were safely evacuated, he ran to knock on the doors of the rest of the apartments in their building to make sure all the neighbors and their pets got out. I was just thinking, I've got to get everyone out, he said. It's my military duty. It is my personal duty as a human being and as a Christian to do the right thing. And that's who I am as a person. After making sure everyone was going to be okay, Lot sent a text to his Army recruiters at the Fort Dodge Recruitment Center to let them know what happened and that everyone was safe. There's a picture of uh, Josiah Lot on the front page here standing in front of the American flag. The article reads on, Lot's apartment was directly next to the apartment where the fire began, and those two apartments sustained the most fire damage. The Flott family lost everything. Well, almost everything. We still have each other, Lot said with a smile. <clears throat> it's sad that we lost stuff, but it's people's lives that are important. The fire began at 332 Avenue M West in the Rest Ridge Townhomes apartment complex, The Fort Dodge Fire Department was dispatched shortly after 1 a.m. on October 22nd. The building contained eight units with 14 occupants and several pets. No injuries were reported, but several families lost everything. A week after the fire, a 13-year-old boy was arrested and charged with reckless use of fire in connection to the blaze. Losing Losing his family's home and everything they owned wasn't the only bad thing that went through in um, October, about a week before the fire, Lot was driving his car when he was hit by a drunk driver. He wasn't injured, but his car was totaled, which has caused some challenges with transportation. In addition to being a full-time student, he attends Harvest Baptist School uh, and does some homeschooling. Lot works two jobs and runs an online business to help support his mother, who has multiple sclerosis, and two younger sisters. I do my best to take care of them, he said. Sometimes my mom can't cook, so I go into my job and get her food. Or if a bill comes up or something or anything, 
I try to pitch in a little bit every month. The teenager who also helps his mom pay for his younger sister's private schooling. With graduation near, Lot began looking for other ways he could continue to help support his family, so he decided to enlist in the U.S. Army Reserves. In addition to providing an income, Lot hopes to be able to use his GI Bill benefits to help send his sister to college. It's my job, my pleasure, my honor to take care of others around me, he said. Here's an article written by the Iowa Capital Dispatch uh, looking for a partner. It's called Nebraska Lawmaker Seeks to Work with Iowa's Prescription Drug Donation Program. Uh, Dateline is Lincoln, Nebraska. One Nebraska lawmaker's efforts to increase recycling have led her to explore an Iowa program to donate and reuse prescription drugs and tackle rising medication costs. Freshman State Senator Jana Hughes of Seward is looking to join forces with Iowa nonprofit, it, nonprofit Safe at NetRx, which collects, inspects, and distributes non-expired and safe medications to patients at or below 200% of the federal poverty line. SafeNetRx receives donations from more than 200 facilities and individuals in all 50 states, including at least one Nebraska pharmacy in Gretna. However, SafeNetRx distributes medicine only within Iowa and Nebraska. Uh, it would need to change its laws to allow reciprocal distribution. The more options they have to get it back out the door, the better, Hughes said. The nonprofit has been looking to expand medication distribution to other states in addition to Nebraska, according to CEO John Rossman, though the Cornhusker state is a, long, a logical partner due to proximity and similarities in geography and demographics. Most Nebraska pharmacies participate in a drug disposal program that collects and ships drugs to be destroyed. According to the Nebraska Pharmacists Association, the program is funded by nearly 300000 in state appropriations and 700000 from the Nebraska Environmental Trust over three years. The program seeks to prevent drugs from going into landfills or water systems and includes all unused drugs, including non-expired meds. It is just sickening that we are destroying perfectly good medications, Hughes said. Hughes has been examining ways to increase recycling in general, and donated medicine would be an extension of those efforts, she said. She, she envisions pharmacies having one bin for redistribution and another for destruction, sim similar to how collection efforts work for trash and recycling. Rossman said his nonprofit is designed to address two pervasive problems, patient affordability and pharmaceutical waste. About 75% of unused medicine accumulates in long-term care and institutional settings, he explained, and it only takes sense, makes sense to tap into those sources. Since the drug repository program began in 2007, it has grown to be the largest in the nation and has been supported by Republicans and Democrats alike in Iowa. It's a problem that is very pragmatic, and it's a solution that Midwesterns can see as being a very logical solution, Rossman said. SafeNetRx has served more than 134,000 patients, and it has collected, inspected, and made available $105 million in donated medical medicine through its dispensing network, according to the organization's most recent annual report. With a budget of roughly $1 million, SafeNetRx annually begin, brings in 
$25 million to $30 million in donated medicine, Rossman said. The nonprofit returns $12 million to $15 million to patients or below 200% of the federal poverty line. Return is massive. The impact on patients' lives is massive, Rossman said, and the opportunity to join forces and create something really remarkable that our Midwest can be proud of, that's not lost on us as well. SafeNetRx has multiple layers of inspections and checks donations to see whether they are sealed and tamper-evident packing, non-expired, and non-controlled substances. Pharmacists can also confirm that medications do not require refrigeration and show no signs of tampering or deterioration. To date, according to State NRX, there have been zero patent, rather zero patient safety issues. Moving now to the opinion section of the paper. Here's one. Santa cops were on the beat again, looking for evidence of the Christmas spirit. Or rather, looking for evidence of the Christmas spirit? You need look no further than the Santa cops and these youngsters. The Santa cops project is a delightful annual effort to make the holiday season a bit brighter for area youngsters whose families need a hand up to make this time of year as merry as it should be. The Fort Dodge Police Association, Webster County Sheriff's Department, Fort Dodge Webster County Reserves, Iowa State Patrol, and Gallery Police Department collaborate on a truly inspiring holiday undertaking. Officers took the young folks on holiday shopping sprees at Target in Fort Dodge on two evenings last week. Area schools help pair law enforcement officers with needy families and children. Program is funded through private donations. Officers participate during time off from regular duties, but are in uniform for the shopping trip. One particularly important aspect of the program is that children get to have one-on-one contact with an officer in a totally different environment that they would on the street. This helps shape positive attitudes regarding the role of law enforcement personnel in our community. This is a marvelous holiday tradition that benefits both the children and the law enforcement officers who participate. The adults say they are impressed and inspired by the generosity the young shoppers show. Frequently, the youngsters are more focused on what they can get for their loved ones than on fulfilling their desires. Looking for evidence of the Christmas spirit? You need look no further than the Santa cops of these youngsters. The messenger is an enthusiastic backer of the Santa cops project. And here's an opinion. It's entitled, This Christmas Season, Visit Downtown Shops, written by Sharon Stroh. As of this writing, Friday, there are 10 shopping days left before Christmas morning. It is the same date every year, yet it still comes upon many unexpectedly. By then, shoppers are usually running out of steam and are frustrated with gift opinions or shipping deadlines and delays. But when you shop on Main Street, everything changes. There is a meme on Facebook post recently that says, All I'm saying is, I've never had to do self-checkout at a small business. Wow. That one hits home. In fact, according to American Express, the founder of Small Business Saturday, 54% of holiday shoppers say that small business provide better customer service than large retail stores. You know what else they have to say about shopping in your main street neighborhood? By spending money at a small business, shoppers can help keep the business open for the rest of the year. Fourth quarter earnings sometimes account for up to 50% of a small retailer's income. By spending money at a small business, shoppers can help keep the business open. According to the National Retail Federation, in 2022, 
Shoppers spent $4.9 trillion on retail purchases, a 7% year-on-year growth. Consider these two stories. Hobby Lobby once was was once the idea of a husband and wife with only $600 making miniature picture frames in their garage. It took two years to move into a 300-square-foot location. Today, they have 900 stores and 43,000 employees in 48 states. In 1971, Starbucks was a single coffee house in the Pike Place Market area of Seattle. It would take another 17 years before they expanded into Chicago, California, Washington, D.C., and New York. And now they have storefronts in Japan, China, and Russia. There's no reason to believe that any downtown merchant doesn't have the capacity to grow beyond their wildest dreams if they choose. Fort Dodge's Main Street District has 34 retail shops plus 17 food, beverage, entertainment locations. That makes 51 donations for shop destinations for shopping and dining downtown, several of which are within walking distance of one another. You can find trading cards for the kids, a warm sweater or blanket to cuddle up with on a cold night or enjoy a dining experience downtown. You can find a children's book, the perfect cupcake, or ornaments for the tree as well. You can find ways to be artistic with glass, pottery, or fabric. Santa can also get you ready for a long winter's nap in a lovely recliner. And if all these options don't already make you want to shop downtown, Think of all the times these small businesses contribute to causes that are meaningful in the nonprofit community. Nearly every Main Street merchant has donated a raffle prize, sponsored the team, or given cash or product to a worthy cause. Their generosity helps make the fabric of this community so much stronger. You don't often find that from big box stores. It's the personal relationships at local venues that build recurring patrons and forge profitable partnerships. And finally, to really wrap this uh, wrap this with a bow, as public confidence in the main street district grows and participants' understanding of the revitalization process becomes more sophisticated, Main Street can tackle increasingly comp- complex problems and more ambitious projects, like the Merrill's Alley Improvement Project. The incremental change leads to more enduring and dramatic positive changes in the Main Street area. The Main Street merchants would like to thank you in advance for the selecting their shops for your holiday shopping. For your for in advance for selecting their shops for your holiday shopping and hope that you'll join them in 2024 for another prosperous retail year downtown. Sharon Stroh, who wrote this, is the executive director of Main Street Fort Dodge. Going to move over to the obituary section now. We have three or four here. Linda R. Van Gorkum, V A N G O R K O M, of Rolf. Linda, age 74, passed away on Saturday, December 16, at the Pocahontas Community Hospital in Pocahontas, Iowa. Funeral services, funeral service is 10:30 a.m. Wednesday, December 20. St. Peter Lutheran Church in Pocahontas, with Pastor John Mayer officiating. Burial will be in Clinton Garfield Cemetery near Rolf. Visitation is from 4 to 6 p.m. Tuesday, December 19, Powell's Funeral Home in Pocahontas. Powell's Funeral Home of Pocahontas is handling the arrangements. For online condolences and obituaries, you can visit powersfh.net. 
Scott Thompson, 53, of Fort Dodge, died Thursday, December 14th. University of Iowa Hospital in Iowa City. Memorial services will be held at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, the 20th of December at Lighthouse Ministries, 1333 4th Avenue North, with Reverend John Elkin officiating. Memorials may be directed to the family. Arrangements are with Historic Bruce Funeral Home of Fort Dodge. To view the complete obituary and leave online condolences for the family, please visit Bruce's funeralhome.com. Joanne or Joan Schaffer, S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R of Lake City, 91 years old. Funeral will be 11 a.m. Monday at the Woodlawn Christian Church in Lake City. Visitation 3 to 5 p.m. Sunday at the Lemke and Powers Funeral Home, burial in Lake City Cemetery. Todd Sorensen, Clarion, Memorial service is Thursday, December 21st at 2 p.m. The United Methodist Church in Clarion with visitation from 1 p.m. until service time at the church. Uh, you can go to foustfh.com for more information. Turning to the sports section, a few articles. Read a couple here. Dodgers back on the hardwood, it says, by Dana Becker. And it says, for one time, for one final time in 2023, Fort Dodge hits the courts as the Dodgers host Spencer in a twin bill here Tuesday night. Tip is set for 6.15 p.m. After a five-point home loss to Humboldt last Thursday, the Fort Dodge girls, 4-3 overall, responded with a convincing 59-34 win at Marshalltown on Friday. L.J. Mayo and Mia McClaib both recorded a double-double. Mayo had 19 points and 10 rebounds. McCaleb added 17 points and 10 boards, and Dakota Palmer had 10 points. Brooklyn Palmer finished with nine steals, as McCaleb and Ashlyn Wills each added five steals. A sophomore, Mayle, is averaging a double-double on the year, leading the Dodgers in both scoring and rebounding. Mackenzie McBrath, McIl- McIlrath is second on the team in points per game, with McCaleb second in boards and first in assists. Spencer, 0-6. Has lost all six of its games to date by at least 19 points. Addison Hoban leads the Tigers at seven points at night. A night, along with a 53 to 36 victory last year for Spencer, the Tigers also topped Fort Dodge back in 2015, 67-44. Willie Williams and the Dodger boys, 0 and 7, are coming off a tough road setback to Marshalltown this past Friday night. Cade Westerhoff scored a game-high 22 points. But an early deficit forced FDHS, FDHSH to play from behind. Westerhoff and Drake Warland are each averaging double figures on the year and are leading rebounders for the team. Spencer, 2-2, two two, has won its last two since opening the season with a back-to-back losses to Sioux City East and Emmitsburg. Tigers have not played since December 8 when they topped Cherokee 62-51. Kale Bruning is uh, averaging a team high of 10.7 points per game with Jack Berenz at 9.7 and Ethan Hansen 9. All three are juniors, as Berenz is also the leading rebounder. Last year, Spencer scored 62-53 victory over Fort Dodge. Here's one out of uh, Dateline Carroll. It's called Meyer and Walker Earned Top 5 Spots by Diana Becker. Sam Meyer and Adam Walker recurred Two top five finishes for the St. Edmund wrestling team here Saturday at the Carroll Invitational. 
Meyer earned a fall over Miles Vandervelde of Council Bluffs, Abraham Lincoln to earn third at 138 pounds, while Walker finished fourth at 215. The host Tigers scored 211 points to take home team honors ahead of Council Bluffs, Abraham Lincoln, and Westwood. Greene County was fourth, Pocahontas area fifth, St. Edmund 10th, Manson Northwest Webster 11th. After picking up a fall in the quarterfinals, Meyer was bested by Westwood's Thomas Gamboa in the semis. He bounced back, topping Green County's or Twin Counties crew Connor 8-5 before taking care of Vander Veldi. Walker also reached the semifinals with a fall, pinning Xavier Mendez Rosez of Storm Lake in the first period. He lost to Carol Kemper's Bright Wiskus, but came back with a fall over Gunnar Namini of Anita Cam to reach the third place match. Kinnick Henning went 1 2 on the day, earning a fall before being knocked out of the medal round at 132 pounds. For Green County, Jaron Jacobs was crowned the champion at 106 pounds. Brent Denhart won the title at 165, and Zeke Binkley, Jackson Turner, and Marcus Ball each placed second. Dominique Aljets and uh, William Lawson went back to uh, back to back for Pocahontas area, taking home gold at 144 and 150. Aljets, who is now 14 and two on the year, down Brinkley in the finals three to two, while Lawson, who sits at 16 and two, bested Turner six to two. Ryan Panbecker was third with Cohen Hammond and Ryan Summerlot, each placing fourth for the. Uh, uh, for the in uh, uh, excuse me folks I just lost my place I apologize folks I'm going to have to end that story there I cannot find the rest of it but uh, there was a good story about wrestling I'm going to move on if you'll forgive me into a, a little sports roundup of the Iowa Central women denied on the road this council bus deadline the Iowa Central women excuse me closed out on the pre-holiday portion of their schedule here Sunday, falling to Iowa Western 72-67. Down early, the Titans, Tritons, 9-3 overall, 1-3 in ICCAC rallied, cutting the deficit down before the Reavers, 9-1 and 4-0, were able to secure the win. Our team played hard for 40 minutes and rallied back from a 10-point deficit, ICCC head coach, Seba Dickerson said, we had challenges, chances throughout the game, but weren't able to capitalize on each of them. We are very proud of the poise and composure that our team demonstrated. They didn't let the calls, fans, or anything else get to us. Mia Danielson scored 16 points with five rebounds and two steals. Caitlin Tindall added 15 points and four steals. And Laney Pilcher at nine points with four assists and three steals. Mia Danielson has showed serious improvement over the last few weeks and knocked down quality shots for us, Dickerson said. Likewise, Amaya Terrell has been stepping up. We are fortunate that we can have multiple players in double figures each night. Shannon Niles led four Iowa Wesleyan Western plays in double figures from six, with 16. The Tritons return in 2024 when they head to Marshalltown on January 3 before hosting Southwestern on Saturday, January 6. Well, that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I've been your reader, Doug Kretzinger, 
I want to thank you for starting sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. I hope you have a good day.